0: G'day, I'm Ollie Laleave and welcome to GRDC in Conversation. We'd first like to acknowledge the traditional lands on which the podcast is produced. We've travelled to and spoken to people all across southern Australia for this series, and we'd like to pay our utmost respects to the First Nations Australians who have told stories on this land for thousands of years. This series is a GRDC investment that takes you behind the scenes as we sit down with some of the people shaping our grain industry, uncovering their journeys learning more about their passions and the projects that are part of their everyday. We're uncovering Southern Australia's grain-growing regions, chatting with researchers, advisors, growers, advocates and just about everyone in between. This week I'm sitting down with semi-retired soil scientist, and semi-retired because, as you'll uncover, Anne McNeil is definitely still very busy. Don't let the accent fool you. She's lived in Australia for quite some time and she's done a lot of work and research with farmers to help improve their crops. Because why else would a Brit who grew up in a village move to Perth of all places? Well, you better keep listening. She has fascinating stories about research, her time in the Middle East, her pathway into academia and the love she found along the way. Have you ever gone for the same job as your partner? Well, Anne has. And you better keep listening to find out how she navigated it. Let's jump in. To give you a bit of a a background very quickly, Anne, but we are just doing these podcasts, sitting down, having a chat with different people from different backgrounds as part of this GRDC in conversation podcast. And I think your background is really interesting. I think we're going to cover probably many layers of UK agriculture, Australian agriculture. But firstly, one thing I do love to do is just start off with a bit of a check-in. Um, can you tell me, so I'll do it with with our team a little bit, but um, a physical and an emotional check-in, you've got to rank yourself out of 10 and you can't choose seven. How are you feeling on the physical and the emotional side?
1: Yeah. Um, about the interview or just in general you mean just oh, we about can the both. interview? Yeah. Yeah, I'm a, I am guess I'm slightly nervous because I always am when I'm doing anything that involves thinking a little bit before I speak mm-hmm. because I tend to talk off the top of my head normally. I like that. Uh, so, you know, um, but I will relax into the interview. I know that. So, um, yeah, that's, that's how I feel. I feel slightly nervous. Uh, physically okay, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm excited to be sitting down with you. And I think let's address... If you're comfortable, when we were chatting on the phone, you told me a little bit about sometimes when you're lecturing, you can, as you get nervous, which I actually think nerves are really cool because it shows that you care about something. So I'm glad you're, you're caring about being part of our podcast, but how do those nerves show up to you and when yes. do they come up?
1: Well, I, I agree with you that nerves, nerves are um, a good thing. And I think that a lot of people have said about me that I'm a very enthusiastic person. And I think Nervous energy translates into passion and enthusiasm. So I do look on it positively, really. But uh, one of the physical things that happens to me is that I get a bit of a block on saying some words that maybe... And it causes me to actually stammer. So, uh, And this really came to light when I first came lecturing in uh, Adelaide out at Roseworthy campus of the University of Adelaide with the agricultural students who, as you know will be very quick to pick up on any character defect that someone might have. And uh, I was responsible for a subject called Principles of Sustainable Agriculture. And the word sustainable, if you are a stammerer, is not the best word. And you sometimes it would come out as sus, sus, sustainable. And uh, which, of course, was doubly funny with the word sus in there. Um, and yeah, students used to note this. Um, But it was always only nearer the beginning of the lecture. By the time I was towards the end when I got into it, I I found that that kind of disappeared really. So, yeah, and they would even, one of them in the exam, wrote sus, sus, sustainable agriculture. Uh, Obviously, that's something that they'd just picked up and I had a little chuckle over that one day.
0: (laughs) So you can see the funny side. Yeah,
1: I can, yeah.
0: Well, if it comes up today and my goal for our chat is to make you feel comfortable enough that it doesn't come up. So let's see yeah. how we go. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. That'd be all right. Now, I love starting off our chats with a little bit of a background about the person. I think you've been known as a bit of a pommy Sheila in different circles, and we can still hear this hybrid accent of Australia, UK, but I'd love to know, whereabouts, whereabouts did you grow up What part of the world?
1: Yeah, so I... I started, I was born in London, so really in the south of England, and uh, shortly after that my father was posted to Singapore, so I spent uh, the first probably four or five years of my childhood in in Singapore, uh, in a naval base there, and then uh, we returned to the south of England, so that's where I grew up in, um, in a town, I was a townie, Um, the surrounding countryside was to me a place you went to walk and have fun. I knew nothing about the agriculture, but, uh, I know now that it was arable country, 20 inch rainfall, uh, pigs, cattle, um, cereals. So that was, you know, that's sort of surrounded where, where I actually lived. Um, but then, uh, I spent my whole life in that town. It was a place called Reading, um, had a nice brewery. So there was often a lovely smell of hops on, on around, um, and then um, after that, I moved away from home when I was 18 and went up to uh, university in the north of England. So that's where I started life was in England. In the English countryside. And so where did
0: the agriculture influence come from?
1: So the agriculture influence, uh, I mean, when I was a child, I did enjoy walking in um, the cow paddocks adjacent to my grand grandparents' house on the south coast. And I did like that. So... I think something in me liked the outdoors, but I didn't equate that with agriculture necessarily. But then uh, when I went to university, that's when I really um, uh, got the bug for agriculture and for, for feeding people really, for understanding that agriculture was something that was really important in feeding the world. Um, and I did that through, I, I did a course called Applied Biology, the, the undergraduate course. And that was a very wide-ranging course, and it had people that were interested in medicine or um, uh, the environment or anything to do with the application of biology. Um, And then um, during that time, it was what was called a uh, sandwich course, and uh, that meant that it was four-year duration, but in two of those years, you went out to industry for six months. And found a job, and uh, they helped you find a job. And my two jobs were the one was with Fisons, the agrochemical company. So that is where I found my love of field trials and and answering questions with with field trials. Um, and the second one was with the Grassland Research Institute, which was in the south of England. And I there I found the combination of doing research to understand agricultural problems. Uh, So that really was where I got the bug for for agriculture. Um, And it was also fired, I guess, by a woman that has been a mentor of mine. She's in her 90s now, Pam Good. Uh, And she came to teach us something called agricultural botany in our third year. And she had been in Uganda teaching um, agriculture to young girls. She was very much keen on um, establishing good practices so that she could address poverty in in Uganda. Um, Unfortunately, she had to return from there in the reign of Idi Amin, which many people may not not remember, but he wasn't a very nice dictator there at the time. Um, But she helped me in my... in my honours year, my final year, to do a project, a research project, on something I'd been working on at Fison's, a chemical called ethofumisate, which addressed killing poa annua in ryegrass, which many people in Australia might find strange that people were growing ryegrass crops, but they were. Um, And the mechanism Of how it acted was was not understood and my inquiry was how is it working i I love to understand how things work and so we did a trial at my university which was in manchester in the north of england on the top of a 13 story tower block my god uh, a little greenhouse up the top and pam used her contacts to find a fison's rep who did the spraying of the of the uh, small seedlings for me and then i sat in her office at a small bench doing dissecting out the um, meristems the apical meristems of these grasses they're very fine jelly-looking things and working out then i did electron microscopy and scanning electron microscopy on on those so i used high-level techniques to actually work something out. And we found that there were growth influences on the meristem for the poa annua that they weren't for the ryegrass, which was why it killed it it off. So I think that really was the defining year of my life, that final year at university when I did that honours project.
0: That's incredible. And um, I'm going to be honest, a lot of the science stuff, I was not a very good science student at school. So lots of what you've said has got over my head, but I can see the passion that you're that you talking about it with. I'd l- love to step back. You, you say that you like understanding how things work, but that love that brought you into agriculture initially, and I guess the passion that's coming through now around that research project and that final year of being really defining. Do you think what made you fall in love with agriculture back then is still burning today?
1: Uh, yeah, I I do. Even though I'm retired, I still get a real buzz out of driving around the countryside, seeing how crops are performing, um, listening to weather forecasts around the country to see um, and and reports of how seasons have gone. Um, I still find that yeah, really really interesting. And on the on the side of the research, I still try to keep up with ground cover and a few other. Publications and some journals, just to see where the advances are are still being are still being made. So I guess I still have I still have an interest, even though I live in a town. I live in a town north of north of Adelaide called Gawler, a country town. Uh, but yeah, for me, something is embedded in me, and I don't know where it came from because my parents were not agricultural or anything, you know. But yeah, I I just feel that it's. That that interest is still there, and and maybe that's why I enjoy being on the um, the Soil CRC um, committee um, for looking at at uh, funding for uh, research. Uh, it's called the Research Adoption Committee, um, and uh, I do enjoy that because that keeps me in the loop in terms of what's happening in agriculture across Australia.
0: Yeah. Actually, keeps your finger on the pulse and. I want to take a couple of steps, kind of, I guess we're going to meander our way towards Australia in this story. So at the moment we're in the UK, but you've had the opportunity to work in agriculture in a global setting from the UK to, I think was it the Middle East or Africa as the stepping stone. So what did that career progression and steps look like? And what was it, I guess, the link that ended up being why you came to Australia?
1: Yeah, so... I, I think there's been a fair bit of serendipity in my career progress and, and uh, generally luck. And also, I guess, being a positive person, maybe that's helped. But I finished my PhD... Up, oh, sorry, can I go back? Yeah. Uh, yeah, The the uh, after I finished my undergraduate degree, I thought that I would perhaps do a master's in some kind of crop science or pathology... To ease my way into into the agricultural world, but I got offered—this is the luck coming into it—I got offered a scholarship at the Grassland Research Institute where I'd done a placement uh, to do a PhD on a on a forage legume called Sanfoin, um, which isn't grown much in Australia but is grown a bit in New Zealand as well as the UK. Um, so that was my first bit of luck, and I did my, my PhD there, um, with a guy called John Sheehy, who was a very good scientist. Um, and it was a, a fantastic research institute at that time, uh, over 300 people there and a great atmosphere. Um, so that was really the first bit of luck I had. And then after that, during that time, I also had a child during my PhD. So that was an interesting challenge. Um, But I finished my PhD and then I had an interview with the University of Reading in the UK and they, I I didn't get the job. It was for a postdoctoral researcher. And so at that time, I packed all my papers, all my research stuff into a very small back room of our house. And I decided to raise another child, to have a second child and raise a family and focus on that for a while. Well, after one year, I had a child in my arms and the phone rang. And they it was Reading University saying, uh, you were second on the list for the job last year and the, the incumbent left. And so I was just thinking, what do I do? You know, the career door opened. And my husband at the time was very enthusiastic and said, yes, it's a good opportunity from economic reasons and also for your career. So I did, that was another piece of luck, just being said, there's a job here if you want it. And so I took that job and that led me for eight years at Reading University Soil Science, which was one of the top soil institutions in, 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 the, in the world, really. It was, it's well known um, and uh, had a really good reputation for both research in, in agriculture in the UK, but also overseas work. And so then, um, during that time, I was on the the sort of hamster wheel that many postdocs know of one or two years funding. And even one time I was packing my office and one of my bosses came in and said, "Uh, you can unpack, I've just got one more year for honey. So it was, you know, not an easy time with a young family and a mortgage, but we kept going. And then in the Towards the end, towards, I think it was about after five years there, five or six, I got offered a postdoc that involved working in the Middle East in Syria. And I didn't have to go and live there, but I used to visit there for uh, a month at a time, three times a year. Um, And that was where I started to get my... um, appreciation of dry land agriculture, really, because it was the International Centre for Arid Research in the dry area, for agricultural research in the dry areas. And along comes another woman, another woman who was a magnificent mentor called Hazel Harris. Dr. Hazel, everyone called her there, all the field workers. And she was from Armidale and was such a character. And she was a very shy person but very good at her research and very practical. She was introducing machinery to do no-till in, in Syria, um, small prop machinery, but to try and demonstrate the effects of no-till so you could build carbon in the soils. And uh, she used to run along behind the, the machine, with, sometimes with a cigarette and her <laughs> leather jacket on, Shouting shui shui, shui shui, which meant go slow because the tractor driver would get in and just take off. And she was trying to teach him how to do this technique. But I stayed with her. She offered a room to me when I went out there. And I have to say that she introduced me to Australian wine. She used to get it flown in <laughs> and to uh, tales of Australian life. She used to ride to school on a horse when she was young. And so for me, that she was a wonderful person. And she taught me a lot about agronomy because at that point I'd been a bit more of a pure soil scientist looking at um, my, my main um, area of work through my PhD and into my postdoc at Reading was um, measuring nitrogen fixation. So looking at the interaction of the rhizobium that is in soil with plants and how that fixes atmospheric nitrogen, which is a, a way of um, reducing your fertilizer inputs into into systems. Um, but I had very much done m- mostly pot experiments, one or two field experiments in the UK. But uh, they were large field scale experiments at ICADA, and so Hazel taught me an awful lot about about that.
0: And so this passion and interest of dryland agriculture opens up and then one factful day you get a phone call, you haven't been to Australia, and you get offered a job and it takes you to Perth. <laughs> what were you thinking as you hopped on that plane and headed on over?
1: Yeah, well, I suppose I have to explain that my eight years at Reading were fantastic, but during that time, my personal relationship founded... And I ended up being a single mum. And so, and I was also dependent on these contracts all the time. So there were two factors. One was, I just felt I would like to try a different life or try something different. I was stuck in a rut in, in a personal sense. And secondly, the, the job in um, Perth was a five-year contract which was long when you were used to two or three year contracts. Mm -hmm. So I said to my ex-husband would he give me permission to take the children and I mean that was another piece of huge luck or good fortune because he said yes and uh, so he allowed me to bring them and then you know on top of that I said to the kids we'll go and if we don't like it we'll go home. So it was it was almost a, f- a foolhardy thing to do, some people might say. Always but I've been very much one who lives for the moment, who makes, some might say, a rash decision, but I think they're just decisions that you, you always know you can change something afterwards. So it it just appealed to me. And uh, the kids, I sold it for the kids on, we're going to the country where neighbours is filled, <laughs> and, butthole, and where... Um, There is, uh, you know, we were close to the beach, you know, the beach lifestyle. Um, Because the older, one child was 11 and she wasn't too keen on leaving England, but uh, the one that was seven thought we were coming to some extended holiday, she tells me, these
0: days. Yeah. And in 1993, I guess it was pre-internet, so they couldn't do too much Googling. And moving to Perth these days, a kid coming out from the UK might just look at 30-odd sharks then... On Perth basis it probably No, no I don't think I'm no, gonna get go. right. that <laughs> Yes,
1: yeah. Yeah, so and the the uh, the group I was going to work with, it was the Centre for Legumes in Mediterranean Agriculture, based at the University of Western Australia. But my group was headed by someone called Ian Fillery from uh, C S I R O. So I had a foot in both C S I R O and the university, which was a really good opportunity in terms of um, uh, in terms of accessing high-level research equipment and expertise. And uh, so during my postdoctoral career, I had developed a real interest in using stable isotopes, which are isotopes that are not radioactive, but they have an extra neutron, so they are slightly heavier than their normal isotopes. So nitrogen is normally has a... A mass of 14, but with the extra neutron, it has a mass of 15. And so, when you introduce that into a a system that's got lots of ordinary nitrogen in it, you can trace it. So, that that was my um, uh, really, my real interest. And so, I was able to develop that interest in terms of grain legumes and how much nitrogen they accumulate in their root systems at. at, um, Perth, and uh, but I have to say, my first foray into the fields in Western Australia, I just thought, what is this? It's a beach. I'm doing research I- at the beach. It was the it was the um, eastern wheat belt around a place called Beverly, and it was just so sandy. Uh, it was unbelievable, and I also that's where I first got my taste of duplex. So-called duplex or texture contrast soils, which are sands over clays. Um, so that was um, very, yeah, very interesting. And the first year I came in '93, and we started the. So I was starting trials in the season of '94. We arrived in November '93 with with my children. I did, and then um, it didn't rain until almost June of '94. And I remember the children going outside in Perth and saying, it's it's raining, Mum. And it was just unbelievable to us, coming from England, that there was no rain all of that time. And that, unfortunately, nine to four was a drought year. It was particularly bad in the east, but also not very good. So my first year of field trials were quite short because uh, I was working on a subterranean clover and... Uh, yeah, there was not a long season because of the drought.
0: It'd be such a huge contrast going from the UK. I think you'd had had the exposure through Syria in terms of dryland agriculture, but droughts in Australia can certainly be something. In terms of the approach to farming or maybe the approach to research in your specific field, what well, what did you notice about Australian agriculture versus that in other parts of the world?
1: Yes, I think I think Australian farmers, well, what, one big thing was, of course, that in the UK, farmers had a lot of subsidies. So that was one thing I noticed, that, of course, farmers in Australia were incredibly good at managing resources, both economic and their environmental resources, because they had no subsidies and they had a lot more constraints on their, on their system. Um, and I think now... With the changing climate that some of the UK farmers in in some of the areas um, are probably starting to experience some more restrictions than uh, and perhaps uh, akin to some situations here in Australia I mean when I was in the UK we did have droughts some year where water you couldn't water your garden at all and and sometimes the water would there wouldn't be enough water you'd have to use in the west country you'd have to take water in um, containers from a standpipe in the street. So there are some situations in England where they do appreciate that. But I think in terms of farming, probably um, the biggest one is yeah the, the the rainfall in the in the lower rainfall areas. and then on top of that the soils are absolutely ancient in Australia. So they are highly weathered and therefore, much harder to manage. They're poor in nutrients, um, and they have these other restrictions. Uh, so those, for me, were the really big differences. The other one, of course, is scale, the enormous scale of farms here compared to the type of farms. Um, and in Syria, for example, farmers only had a small strip of, like, they just had, like, one one plot. It would be in a trial here. That would be the area that a farmer was looking after there. Um, there just was no... Village farming was just small strips,
0: yeah. So competitive.
1: Yeah, so, so different. And um, just, well, they would help one another, I think, really, because the bottom line was they're trying to make all make a living. They're trying to grow what they need to eat but also maybe grow stuff to take to market. As you say, that's probably the competitive aspect of it in in Syria.
0: Yeah. Um, In terms of your background, I guess the area you've really focused on in your time in Australia and in the grains industry has been around farmer driven research. Can, Can you explain to me what that is and how is it achieved?
1: Yeah, so that's another thing that was different, I think, between the UK and Australia was when I was in the UK... Research was often driven by um, uh, research bodies, so but not research bodies that had necessarily strong connections with industry. They they would be research bodies funded by government. So a bit like in Australia, the ARC, for example. Um, and so when I and so when I first came to Australia, I was really impressed with the uh, Grains Research Development Corporation and how farmers themselves were investing money in in research and i think in the in the time that i've been here the nearly 30 years now i've seen an enormous change in the extent to which the farmers have been involved and the early the early times i saw this were probably back in 94 uh 95 maybe when um I was encouraged by my bossy and fillery in Perth to write my own GRDC application, and uh, I did. I put, put one in, and uh, here's a little story associated with this, um, if you'd like to hear this. Yeah, please um, share um, I put in an application, and another person at the University of Western Australia who had reasonably similar interests to me put in an application. And as is common with the GRDC, they said they're both good applications, can you combine them together? Well, that person, we did combine them together and we were working, we, we went to work. That, and that other person had links with the Birch Cropping Group. His name was Murray Unkovitch, And uh, he, he and I got together to work on this proposal and we did get funding to work on grain legumes in rotations and trying to quantify... Uh, the nitrogen inputs by grain legumes and how that might uh, influence cereal cropping. But that person, Murray, is now my husband. Uh, And so through the GRDC and that application, we got to talk to each other. And he was a single parent with two children, and so was I. And so that was where the Brady Bunch was born in Perth and uh, continued on from there.
0: How feels that Oh, I'm sure the GRDC now that they've done a bit of matchmaking over the years as well. <laughs> another claim to fame. Yeah. How did you end up here in Adelaide?
1: Yes, that's another story again. Um, a fi- I had a five-year contract um, over in Perth, as I've said, but um, of course you're always looking for something that is more established because with a with a family and a mortgage, you're otherwise you're always thinking, where's the next where's the next dollar coming from? And I, I think nowadays people are perhaps more attuned to to the sort of contractual environment, maybe, but um I I was very keen to try and solidify into something that was a bit more permanent and I also was keen on teaching. Uh, so A job came up in Adelaide at the Roseworthy campus, the University of Adelaide in the Department of Agronomy. And uh, it was a a lectureship which was tenured, could be tenured. So, in fact, both Murray and I applied for that job because we had similar skills and we recognised that it was an opportunity to consolidate. And we said, whoever gets it, the other one will do something else. And um, it was very difficult decision I think for the committee and uh, a person another mentor of mine there was a a man called Professor David Coventry who is a really excellent agronomist but also good people manager and uh, he was on the appointment panel so he did give feedback as to why I had received the job and part of it was my enthusiasm for teaching that came across I think in um in the interview and in the presentation so and yeah so that's why we came to Adelaide was chasing a job really Uh, but also when I first moved to Australia Perth I had no idea Perth was so far (laughs) (laughs) removed from anything else so I mean it was a great place for my children to bring up the kids we played hockey it was a lovely outdoor environment very nice people but um The thing about Adelaide is it's a bit more central too, so that's quite, quite nice. And access to a wider range of farming systems here too, from down in the southeast to, you know, to the Air Peninsula and so a whole range of farming systems. Yeah, so that was why we came.
0: You've got me so curious about this household that you... If you don't mind me asking, that... The balance of competing for the same job, obviously you were successful. I guess you've both got an interest in that role. Was there disappointment and how do you, and you don't have to answer. how do you actually balance that between, yeah, it's actually... Yeah. Yeah, well, that's often a question
1: I ask Murray, how much that has influenced what's happened to him. But he always says, he always says that it wasn't, it, he accepted it quite quite readily, and uh, I think for him. Um, but but I do think for him it was probably difficult, you know, because there wasn't another opportunity um, in Roseworthy at the time. He did come over for when his contract to cleaner finished, so we we sort of separated for a year or so until he'd finished his work there, and then he came came and lived over here as well, and. Um, uh, became a consultant, uh, so in some ways he he. Um, it was an impetus for him to explore other ways he could use his skills. Um, he did go and work for the Department of, of Agriculture in Victoria for a while and then became an independent consultant and still is.
0: Yeah, it's just the most interesting and yeah. fascinating story that's been all over and touched different areas. It's really cool. <laughs> when. Back on the research side, I'd love to know some of the programs or pieces of research that you've done, which I think now um, that you've retired, that you hold quite dearly and are proud of.
1: Yeah, there's a, I suppose there's a couple of things I'm, I'm really proud of. On the research side, one of them is the, uh, being in the early days of imaging roots in, intactly, in, intact roots in soil. Uh, That was something that I started when I first came here to Adelaide, um, using CAT scanning to visualise a root system in a core of soil that hasn't been disturbed. Generally, if you want to examine roots, you have to dig them up, disturb all the soil. You can't see the interaction. I always say it's rather like you see a beautiful jellyfish or a Portuguese man-of-war, hopefully not, (laughs) in the water... But when you pull them out, all those wonderful tentacles and how it, it disappears to a gelatinous blob. And for me, when we were trying to examine how roots actually morphologically grow and then interact with the soil environment, the the imaging was, was the key. And w- whilst I never had success in getting myself a piece of equipment here in Adelaide, I know now that... Um, Tim Cavanaro, another soils professor, has got a piece of equipment here and I'm very excited about that. But we did do some groundbreaking research and, and I know that I really inspired another person to move forward in that area and that was a pro- he's now a professor at the University of Nottingham. He was a UK visitor here and uh, he heard me talk in Sydney at a soils conference and then came here to work with me. And he now has the most amazing facility in Nottingham that I visited after I retired. And he said, when he introduced me, that really this facility exists because I spent time with Annie. So for me, that was very special. And it's a robotic facility for looking at roots in large cores. And it's really amazing. The sort of information you can get about the interaction of roots with nutrients and Soil issues like compaction or uh, acidity or any, any of those things. So that's my first, from a research point of view, I was very excited about being involved in early days of that, and I did love it. And I have a, a story about one time at the Minipa Field Day when we mm-hmm. was on Air Peninsula. I um I was given a slot to talk at the end of a, a nitrogen workshop, I think, late in the day at beer time so i had my postdoc talking for me that time guy called peter classic but we thought we've got the beer slot it won't be very interesting everyone will be talking with their can of beer well they all stopped with their beers and watched our images because they are quite powerful in terms of show and one farmer asked me because we had a picture of a canola root that went down and went sideways and bent a bit in relation to some compaction and then And the farmer said, what I want to know, Annie, is that bend in that root, how much yield has that cost me? So I realised then that they were interested in the imaging. So for me, that was, yeah, I I realised it was worth pursuing that. And it was a very exciting field and it still is. And there's a a lot of high throughput phenotyping now happening with these kinds of systems around the world. So that's great. And my other research um, achievement, I think, is is the progress I made in quantifying flows of nitrogen in pulses, pulse cereal rotations, and quantifying how much nitrogen accumulates uh, in the ground and then how much of it gets released to wheat crops and uh, using that isotope of, of 15N. And I think that's been used by a lot of agronomists, rules of thumb have been developed by people like David Herridge or John Angus or the people around around the country have used those that research to work out rules of thumb about how much nitrogen farmers should apply in rotations and how much nitrogen is being um, put in by, by, by pulses. So those are probably the two really Areas I, and I think I contributed to. And, and a third area was the phosphorus work I became involved in later. Um, and that was really with a postdoc of mine called Sean Mason about how to measure phosphorus availability in soils. And, and I facilitated that, I guess, rather than being... Because by then I was much more of a team leader as opposed to an individual scientist, research scientist. And so with that, I was very privileged to be involved in the development of the diffuse gradients in thin films uh, the, the application of that technique to um, many soils uh, as a better way of measuring phosphorus availability than coal so uh, yeah that was you got that an on the research side and I have a, a lot of other things I've proud of uh on the uh, teaching and extension side too
0: um yeah well I think I'd love to touch on it because I think you've got some incredible pieces of research and impact that you've got there. And I think you were maybe starting to allude to it, but a big piece which I think I'm noticing a little bit about the research space is succession is such a hugely important part of what you do, and I think in terms of sustainable agriculture, and when I say you, I mean researchers, but for sustainable agriculture, it's always this constant evolution. So that passing of knowledge and expertise from the generation today into the next generation of scientists is so important. So for you, how has teaching helped to fill that and, and actually, I guess, continue that work and the legacy which you've already created but in other ways?
1: Yeah, yeah. That I'm I'm that's what I am incredibly proud of all of the students that I have passed through my classes. And I have to I'm embarrassed to say that often they remember me more than I remember them. Uh, because there were a lot of them, but obviously I do remember some key ones that maybe I had a bit more interaction with. Um, And also my PhD students, my master's students, my honours students, they were, I haven't counted them, but there were a lot of them in the 16 years I was teaching in Adelaide. Um, And I I think that... um, One of the things that happened when I retired was I received a letter, actually, from the Air Peninsula Agricultural Research Foundation, and that was a group of farmers over there that are um, involved in farmer-driven research. But one of the things they said was they had heard I was moving on and they just wanted to thank me, but not only for being involved in research on the Air Peninsula, which was a thing I really enjoyed interacting with there, but also in what I'd done with a lot of their children. So a lot of their children had come through Roseworthy and then through the weight here as well. And uh, so I, I, I felt at the time sometimes that it was always not an uphill battle, but sometimes I felt I wasn't adequate to the task, but that's possibly a personality trait of mine. But in general, you know, when I've spoken to people, there are a lot of people who say, well you know, we remember you and we remember what you said. And, and that's really gratifying. I mean, I, I just, I've found that fantastic. And there are students now who are soils consultants and there are ones that are agronomists. There are really good farmers. Um, there's one guy who always used to get like 80%. He farms on the Eyre Peninsula and I see him on Twitter. I sometimes see his sheep going through um uh, on, a, on a truck. Uh, and he's brilliant at managing fodder for sheep. And, you know, he he was a fantastic student. And, and they're just turning into these really successful people, which I think is, for me, it's more about the people maybe than... Yeah, the agriculture, it is important to have those custodians of agriculture that are aware of the limitations of the environment that we have here in Australia and there, But also, for me, it's about people fulfilling their lives. And I think that was, for me, as a a PhD student supervisor, I I really empathised with students in terms of making sure that they weren't getting bogged down, that they were coping and that they were able to do what they needed to do.
0: For awards and accolades, and I think it's a really interesting one how different people take... Uh, I guess recognition, but you were awarded the Tickle Medal from the, the Soil Science Society of Australia, which is all about promoting and raising awareness around soil science. What did that recognition mean to you?
1: Yeah, yeah, that was that was super because I had just retired and uh, uh, I was obviously at that point where I had stopped getting the interaction through lecturing where you get that buzz of performing and the feedback and that sort of thing. So I had, I was missing some of that interaction. And then to hear that I had been awarded the Tickle Award was really gratifying. Um, Yeah, it, it makes you feel that it was really worthwhile, you know, and, and the fact that it's the same with that with that letter from the Air uh, Peninsula Farmers. I, I was just so grateful, really, to know that people appreciated it. And on the back of the Teekel Award, I got invited to give the Leaper Lecture, uh, which is a, a very prestigious lecture at the University of Melbourne in honour of a soil scientist. And um, it was interesting because often the talks are very science-based, so I decided to put it my talk around soil science communication Um, and uh, because I feel that that's for me I like to understand how things work I guess and so I think because I really like to make something as simple as possible to understand it I've been quite good at then communicating that to other people and um That was actually brought home to me recently. I was stood in a paddock only a few months ago watching an ex-student of mine who is a a soils consultant explaining to farmers about dispersion in soils. And she said, the person who taught this to me is standing at the back there in this paddock. And I was a little embarrassed. And afterwards I said to her, well, actually, actually, I didn't really teach you that much about that. I said, there are a couple of other academics in the university who know a lot more. They would have taught you a lot more. And she said, but Annie, you explained it to me so I understood. And that was the important part. So that's the key thing I think about teaching is to explain things and also to connect with people so you can explain it and and put it into context too. And I taught both uh, students from the wine courses and students from agriculture. So I tried to give context across across all those all those industries: um, animal, grains, uh, viticulture. So yeah, that was. And uh, with with the Leaper lecture, I drove across, and my sister came out from England. My older sister, and uh, she, we drove across together. And she came to listen and she just said to me, that was absolutely bloody brilliant half <laughs> it. And I was, that was again, a piece of praise from your own family, but she sort of had tears in her eyes. She said, I wish mum had been there. You know, it was just one.
0: That's so, so special.
1: So I just thought, how special is that? Mm. And uh, And afterwards... One girl in the audience, and I'm sorry I've forgotten her name, but she is a soil scientist. She's written a little book on soil science for children, and her name's gone out my head. But she came up to me afterwards and said that was very inspirational, and in fact, she then got on... She decided to try and go to Antarctica. Um, to I was talking about never giving up on anything, always extending your boundaries, trying to... Um, Aim for the stars, you know, that's really important. And, and she did, she went to Antarctica, I remember, and then since then she's written a, a lovely book. I've bought it for my grandchildren, a book on soils, and it, it's for children. And, yeah, it is just a, it was brilliant to know that something you've done has actually inspired people like that. And, and everybody does these things, but what I've been lucky that people have actually either told me, you know, I've had the feedback as well through student questionnaires and I've had some bad feedback, as I think I told you on the phone, Uh, you know, feedback where people haven't liked what what I've done. And I got, we love her, she wears such funky clothes. (laughs) So a whole range of, you know, and then the, well, I wish she wouldn't ramble on so much, so... In, but you take the rough with the smooth, I think, and you, and interacting with farmers, you really do have to take the rough with the smooth because uh, quite rightly they are critics of research and I think that that's important and researchers need to listen. Um, and up, and up, but I found communication in the Air Peninsula
0: project was
1: outstanding really that for me, I've made some great farmer friends over there. Yeah.
0: And it sounds like the impact that you've made will continue to be made and, and probably for what you've heard is only a small percentage of what's actually out there. So I think that's
1: nice to think that anyway,
0: I think that's incredible. Now I do like to wrap with the fast five questions and we do ask everyone these. So I'd love to know, what is your favourite grain-based dish?
1: Yeah, I make um, a chickpea curry with quinoa and kale and carrots in it, and it's coconut curry, coconut milk. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a, sort of a soup, but a curry, and and I love it. I absolutely love it. It's very good for you.
0: So who would be three people that you invite over to share this dish with?
1: Yeah, and that's a hard one, I think. Um, I mean, I'm... I'm I think someone like the Dalai, Dalai Lama would be really interesting to yeah. to invite to dinner, um, and and I recently I saw Craig Foster give a press club talk, and he's the Australian. He was a very famous footballer, um, Australian footballer who then uh, worked hard with refugees. He's he's a humanitarian really, and he is a really interesting guy I think because he's come from that fame and. A sporting prowess but then in his life he's applying his skills to he got somebody out of some country that was stuck there I forget who that was now but but he he really I think he he spoke so well I sent a text to a friend of mine to say why isn't this guy our prime minister you know because he was just fantastic so someone like him and I love Stephen Fry yeah the English guy who's Oh, he's just, I think he's on QI and a few other programs. And But, you know, I also think from an agriculture perspective, I, I'd love to bring to the table, if I was going to invite three people from Australia, I'd probably ask my old boss, Ian Fillory. I'd ask Professor Coventry and maybe John Hamlin, who was another boss of mine in Perth, just to, because they were all people who really defining people in my life. All of those people, I think, had a big input into into my life.
0: That's really cool. What was your first ever job?
1: Yeah, my first job was in the greengrocers just across the road from my house. I was um, in the days in England, probably in the 1970s. My mother used to work there, and so I had a job on Saturdays. Um, so weighing potatoes on one of those big... Um, uh, metal things that with uh, with the uh uh just the and
0: you slide the yeah you slide the thing
1: along yeah. yeah and then um putting them into people's shopping bags you know none of this they bring their own shopping bag <laughs> so it's very sustainable in terms of there was no packaging involved which i liked interesting yes
0: now you've retired what's something you've got on your bucket list
1: oh i mean i'm I'm very lucky that i do i do do a lot of travel still so I'm pretty lucky there um maybe I've never been really to America uh, on a holiday I've been there for um uh the odd conference but maybe doing route 66 on a motorbike would be something I have actually talked to my husband about um
0: you do a bit of motorbike riding
1: no uh, no I'm a pillion yeah I'm a pillion uh, I tried to get my uh, license, but that's another story. <laughs> we'll
0: leave that one for later. Yes. What's a question you'd like to ask someone else who's part of this podcast series?
1: Where do they see the industry, the grains industry, in 50 years' time? I think in t- because of the changing climate and because of highly changing technology, um are some regions not going to be able to do agriculture anymore or, or are farms just going to get bigger and bigger in those areas? Um, how much is lifestyle farming going to impinge on other types of farming? Um, yeah, there's a whole, I think, how much is global agriculture going to influence agriculture in Australia? Those are Those are important questions, I think, for the sustainability of the grains industry.
0: Absolutely. All very much. Um, great questions. Well, Addie, thank you so much for sitting down and having a chat. I think slightly unconventional in terms of how we've recorded it. Maybe we can share with people how I did it in terms of a couple of phones on top of a book. But thank you so much for joining me.
1: Yeah, You're welcome. It's been great talking to you. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the GRDC In Conversation podcast. This series is a GRDC investment that's sharing the stories of the people who are living and breathing the Aussie grains industry. Make sure you check out some of our other conversations and hit follow on your favourite podcast app to never miss an episode.